further ado, please welcome the legendary, and I do mean legendary, Simon Kirk. And there he is. Hello. Simon, good to see you. Thanks for having a busy day, it looks like. Well, yeah, everything's sort of snowballed at once, but um, and the pest control just arrived, so that's uh, I'm a little late, so my apologies. Um, it's quite all right. Yeah, no, you, you you kind of bailed me up because, you know, it's live and I was trying to yeah on my feet. And I, and no, it, was, it was my fault. And uh, I have a rodent. It's up in the ceiling uh, and it's scrabbling around. It's the weirdest thing. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm sorry about that. The perils of, of owning a house, but it's lovely. It's a lovely, lovely peril. Anyway, good to be yeah, here. It, good, it's good to have you. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. I, I was just talking to the folks watching at home about the um, the Heyman kit. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to talk to Simon about that. I know you played Heyman drums. Sorry, yeah. we'll just jump in. I know you played them during your time with Free. Right. And um, did you use them in the early part of Bad Company as well? Or had you moved to Ludwig? Oh, no. Um, well, on orders from John Bonham, when, when, when Bad Company signed to Swan Song, uh, of course, they're owned by Zeppelin. And and John kind of took me under his wing, even though he was a month older than me, just only a month, so, but he became <laughs> sort of a big brother. And um, I had, I'd switched from Heyman. I don't know what the story was, um, but I got a, a Ludwig kit, a super classic kit in the first early days of, of Bad Company. Um and when John saw it, you know, it was like, oh, what's that piece of shit? You know, <laughs> you know, you want to get a get a 26 inch. I don't believe I had a 22. And it was a small Ludwig kit, but he was, you know, <laughs> bombastic. He was he was like uh, John was like his drums and his drumming style. He was larger than life and uh, he a, a, a charming bully. But a nice bully, and he said, "Look, you got to get bigger drums because uh, he had this, you know, the twenty-six inch bass drum, which I'd never heard of before, yeah. um, and and a fourteen by ten rack tom, and eighteen by sixteen or eighteen by eighteen floor. It was an enormous kit, yeah, which he didn't need, of course. He could make any kit sound big. But anyway, um, I switched to the. Uh, I have it in next door. I got the original Bad Company kit." And the Heyman kit languished in Paul Rogers' studio for years and years, and uh, I, unfortunately, it's, it's no longer playable. It looks a little bit like those photos from the Titanic. Um, you mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> rust and uh, corrosion. Wow. But I loved it. It was a lovely kit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, that's, man, I, I was I was going to ask you about John, and and I was going to sort of work my way into it, but I'm so glad you just dove in with that because um, I, I, I knew you had a history with Bonzo and um, I didn't realize he was, he was the one that sort of took you under his wing, so to speak. And, and with the Ludwig situation and, and, sure. uh, and the same with Peisty or, or had you already, you probably no, I, already. I believe John. Yes. He, um, he did use Pasty, Um but I remember him saying, he said, I'll call up Bill um, in Chicago because, you know, there's a waiting list. Back in those days, you couldn't just go to a guitar center and have it the next day. But I remember, apparently he called 
the actual factory in in and said, "Hey, you know, I want a kit sent over for my mate," and I believe it came over within a week from uh, from Chicago Clear Customs, and it was this beautiful black uh, twenty six inch, you know, the whole the whole nine yards, courtesy of Bonzo. I mean, he uh, because you know he was the spokesman, whether they liked it or not. He played Ludwig and Zeppelin were a pretty big band and whatever he wanted, he got. So, uh, yeah. That was, and, that was, no. and you always played a four piece kit, right? You, did you ever pretty play two floor toms? Yeah. Yeah. I sort of dabbled, you know, where I primarily it was for four piece. I, I've played around, you know, um, dabbled in a twin bass drum mm-hmm. after Baker, you know, ginger and, Back in the late 60s, I had this band called Maiton's Magic Mixture and uh, tried two bass drums, but I could never get the hang of it and had a couple of floor toms. and But, you know, uh, it was always the, the four-piece, really. Yeah, yeah. I didn't need, you know, I sat behind, um, you know, Nico, Nico McBrain's kit, you know, once we, we were on the same bill and... He had this enormous array of drums and he could play it. I mean, that's that was Nico's style. Yeah, um, yeah. Sat behind Mooney's kit, you know, and it was like, fucking hell. I, like, what? <laughs> I said to Keith, are you having a drum sale? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, dear boy. I use, what did he say? Dear boy. He always called me dear boy. He had this affected aristocratic. Oh, dear boy, I use this second floor, Tom, just to put my drinks on, you know. And, uh, uh, but John could play a double kit. He was, uh, um, uh, sorry, Keith, Mooney could play a double kit. Yeah. Beautifully. He was an amazing drummer. Yeah. Yeah, he sure was. Yeah. Man, what a, you know, what a time. I, I know you guys were all, you know, as you say, you're just a little younger than Bonzo. And, and Keith, I think, was a couple of years older than you guys, born in 46, maybe. He, no, he was a youngster. I mean, I can tell you now, he was he was a baby in in the Who. Um, I, I believe he was only nineteen. Maybe he was, I'll tell you now. I just I I remember when he when he passed in seventy eight, hearing that he was thirty two. That's that's where I sort of got the. Okay, well, I stand corrected. You're right. He was born. Uh, August twenty third, nineteen forty six. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, right. but but I mean, you guys all came up at the same time, mm-hmm. and 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 I was just going to say, what a time to grow up in London in the sixties mm-hmm. and just be in it, right? I mean, what was that like to be like free? Started around 60, 68. Yeah, we started in sixty eight. Well, look, I, I, I've maintained for years and years that that that, that decade when the Beatles came on board around 64, 64 to 74, before disco and punk came in and torpedoed everything, you got those 10 years. And, and really, um, the most formative of those years would be around 66, 65, let's say, to, uh, to 70. Those five years, you had Zeppelin, I mean... Yeah, Deep Purple. Yeah, I guess you could. You know, you had us. You know, the Beatles were were coming to prominence. Um, there's obviously the Stones have always been around. Uh, so many bands. Um, 
it was just a golden age of music. And, and I, I, I don't really know that there wasn't one specific element that, that prompted all this. I, it, I, I maintain that there was so much going on in the world back in the mid to late 60s that this was just a reflection of that. You know, you had the Vietnam War, you had uh, Women's Lib, you had the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, there were three big movements going on, three big worldwide um, events, you know, that, that were taking place. And I think the, the, the golden age, the hippie age, if you want, you know, drugs, psychedelic drugs and marijuana. I mean, there's so many things, no computers. <laughs> yeah. I think computers are a real double-edged sword when it comes to music, because on one hand, you know, you can write something, put it together and have it all around the world in five minutes. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it tends to dehumanize music to a degree, I, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, so there were no computers back in those days. I don't know. It, it was just an amazing a golden age of music. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, I, I I was born in 1960, so I was just sort of getting into music at the end of the 60s. I mean, in a you know, in a in a in a real way, and and uh, and I I I just remember thinking, even at, at 10 years old, like how great it was that you had all this music on the radio, like mm -hmm. you know, and, and and now looking back at it, I look at it as as really the golden, as you say, the golden age of it all, you know, and you had all these all these bands, you know, roaming the earth, so to speak. <laughs> you know. Well, you also had what I call the great crossover, and that was in in the mid to late sixties. You had the blues boom in England and Europe, where uh, blues artists who really couldn't get arrested in uh, in America, they had to come over to England and Europe and play all the colleges and universities and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, you know, you had the British invasion spearheaded by uh, the Beatles, obviously. Um, so you had this sort of crossover where English bands came over to America to get big and popular. Uh, and, and, and we had a, a lot of American artists who came over and, and we loved the blues. I mean, we grew up uh, free primarily was a, a blues band, you know, a little, a little off the wall because although we played, several blues standards like crossroads four o'clock in the morning going down slow we started to branch out and and write our own blues based music uh same with zeppelin i mean zeppelin was slightly guilty of a little bit of plagiarism here and there but they <laughs> did pay they did cough up the money in the end yeah but they were they were an amazing blues band you know yeah. and um cream oh an incredible incredible trio um raised on the blues and uh, you know yeah yeah there's a there's a, a note from a, a gentleman that you've met before anthony Cusina said uh, we met back in the 80s when you and peter frampton came to my drum shop in new york to borrow a snare drum sounds like me yeah, did i give it in back <laughs> <laughs> no, i'm sure you did i hope i did my question to you is, what are you focusing on musically these days to improve your overall musicianship? Ah. Well, you never stop learning, do you? It, it's always a work in progress. Um, 
right now, I, during the lockdown and, and whatever, you know, bad company hasn't worked for two years. I do believe we're going out on the road next year. Thank God. Oh, fantastic. Um, but I, you know, I, I play piano and guitar as well as drums, which <clears throat> drums are my first love. Uh, but I'm I'm getting into uh, movie scoring uh, at the moment. Uh, just a little independent, you know. I I'll never be in the the realm of the John Williams and the Alexander Duplat. That's not my thing. But I I've always loved uh, listening to movie music, so I, I'm doing that. I'm writing songs all the time. I've got a lot of material. Probably be doing a, another solo album. Uh, next year as well so wow. yeah i'm 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 keeping busy that's great that's great yeah. congratulations yeah fantastic um you know and and i'm i'm going to just jump backwards for a second i remembered the the chat we did a few weeks ago when we had the big group the little yeah. remembrance for charlie and uh, our friend greg bissonette uh -huh. mentioned our good friend greg great job oh my god yeah yeah i uh, i didn't know he mentioned that when you recorded the original sort of version of All Right Now, you were playing eighth notes on the yeah. hi-hat? Yeah, yeah. And then it was... So how, I'm just curious to just know how that uh, sort of... That's, that's a great question, because when we started it, I don't think I ever played any songs. You know, I was a lot younger then, obviously, and, and it wasn't a question of saving my energy, but playing eights... Um, after a long time, just didn't feel right. It felt a little constricting. Mm -hmm. And I was very much enamored of um, Ziggy, Zigaboo Modulus with the meters. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember hearing, I believe it was Look A Pie Pie, one of the famous meters tracks. And he was doing this do and he was doing but you know just fours on the hi-hat and if it, it's just sort of stuck in my head so when we've done all right now in rehearsals and in sound checks i'd always played eights and on the live album free live you'll hear uh, before we actually recorded it oh. uh, I, I did a version with 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 eights uh, on the hi-hat but anyway getting back to the recording of it um and i remember it so well after about three takes I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this. So instead of dun, 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 I did dun, 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 dun. And I could do his little hiccup, what I call little hiccup uh, uh, strokes on, on the left hand on the snare, and it worked really, really well. It also allowed me to be um, less economical with my energy because I believe we, we did this song about 20 times with false starts and so on and breakdowns and whatever. So I, and I believe we use take six. It just sticks in my head. Wow. But there was just something very freeing about playing fours on the hi-hat, and, and I I do it to this day. And we still play the song, and I love playing it. Yeah, I mean, it's just – and when, when, when you guys were talking, when you and Greg were talking about that last time, you know, I tried to – I'm gonna to have to get the. I'll download the live version and uh, and yeah. listen to it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a different yeah. feel entirely. It must be because I can only hear that song. Yeah, you know that way. It's it's such a. I mean, I I can't even put into words what that song is. It's an institution. You, you know, I mean, it's like wow. one of those songs that all us drummers 
you know, of a certain age, like it's one of those songs that you start off playing. It's, it's just, it's, it's the, the groove is so contagious, infectious, you know? Well, I'll let you into a little secret because it was, I think it was kind of born or influenced by Honky Tonk Woman. I remember sitting in a, in Paul Kossoff's apartment and every, you know, I lived with him for several months. And of course we were completely, we were young. We were listening to all songs, all sorts of things. And I remember Honky Tonk and that was in open G and Keith uh, didn't, he didn't have a bottom E string for all the guitarists out there. He had open G and he started with this and that lovely that sort of tumbling into the beat that Charlie had. Um, and it just, that kind of thing stuck in my brain subconsciously. I, I never consciously copied anything, but uh, all right now, um, became this anthem really um and 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 whenever and wherever we played it it just went down a, a treat uh, but i am regretting uh to this day when when the guitar solo comes in because i'm doing that running yeah. thing on the snare and that's hard that's a really hard thing to build and build and build Absolutely. because the solo you know goes over i don't know 64 bars and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and and I always think, why the hell did you? <laughs> why did you do that, man? Uh, but it, it's it's worked for me, and I you know I do love I love the song. It's great, you know. It's 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 one of the first songs I can remember. Um, and again, I'm just I, I'm, you know, probably I, I'm dating myself, obviously. But in you know 1970, listening to it like in my dad's car. Yeah, you know, radio, trans, little cheap radio in the car. One of the first songs that you could really hear the the bass drum. You know, mm -hmm. like it, the bass drum was so out front as opposed to records that you heard on the radio in those days. And I just remember, like, not even realizing the effect it had on me. But it, it just it created this driving, pulsing groove. You know, and when you're like nine or ten years old, you don't really understand what it is until later, and you go. That's so cool. Oh, that's, you know? that's nice. That's nice. I, I I remember at the time, you know, Cream was were huge, and I always I always thought that Ginger's drums are always mixed very badly and way back in the considering his kit, his bombastic style. You, the, the, the Cream, the the studio album, not the live one. Wheels of Fire is incredible. One of the one of the great live albums. But I always thought that his drums were way in the background, and the first. Um, the first couple of albums of free that I always felt the drums were a little, uh, just a little back in, in the background. So for the first time on fire and water, which is the album that all right now was taken from, I was in on the mixing sessions and I, you know, maybe when the engineer wasn't looking, I would just sort of inch up the, <laughs> the bass drum fader because I, I, I was in love with James Brown, the band. And I always, yeah. You know that that doom that what they call the one the downbeat was so important yeah. because it was a springboard for the rest of the rhythm. When you've got that doom, it's like a if if you don't have a real good solid downbeat, you won't have a good backbeat. So when when we came to mix all right now, I made sure that uh, you could hear the kick drum, and I, I love it. Yeah, really, yeah. And it sounds when I listen to that now with a real critical ear, it sounds like you're you're playing 
the front head on the bass drum too. You can hear a little, yeah, little bit of residual boom to it. Is it? I, I think it was because I remember having a conversation with Bonzo, who stubbornly refused to take off the the front head, yeah. and he would cut a little hole. That was his, you know, that, that's what he would give the engineer, and that was it. Uh, and I think I did the same because it, when you take the whole front head off, it tends to emasculate the bass drum, you know, yeah. because a bass drum is a bass drum and you're going to have a little bit of air going back and forth between the the, the batter head and the front head. Uh, but I, I remember I, we did cut a little hole for the uh, for the mic, whatever the mic was. Yeah. It's it's a great sound. And 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 you had also mentioned that it's Paul Rogers playing the clave. Yeah. Part yeah. On, that, on that song. Why do I remember that? It was 50 years ago, but yes. I was playing Maracas, he was playing the clave. Um and and um and then me and Andy Fraser, we were on our knees behind a Hammond organ on the bass pedals. Right at the end, you'll hear these big octave A's. And it's uh, he's taking one end of the foot pedals, place, and I'm taking the top. Oh, okay. The wow. things we did, you know. But who knew it was? Uh, yeah. And those percussion parts were played. So Paul's clave was was overdubbed later. It wasn't like during the rhythm track. He he. Put no, it no, it was it was done later. Yeah, it was done yeah. later. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And then so fast forward to Bad Company, which was like a year after Free disbanded, right? Basically, you and Paul. Yeah. We, we, I mean, Free finally ground to a halt in early 73. Uh, so we had five years and we had a couple of lineups and a lot of problems with, with drugs and, and dear Paul Kossoff, you know, uh, finally succumbed. Uh, and then I went away. We just sort of exploded and mm. Paul Rogers went off somewhere. I went off somewhere and, and then I called him up a little, a couple of months later and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've met this great guy, Mick Rouse, uh, from a band, Mott the Hoople. Mm-hmm. And Mott the Hoople were on Island Records, like, free. So we'd seen each other in the offices. Hey, man, how are you? La, la, la. Yeah. And I always liked him. And he said, he, uh, Paul said, well, he's leaving Mott. He's, you know, he's a bit disenchanted and he wants to form a band. Uh, you know, would you want to play drums? And I said, I'd love to, you know, I've always loved Paul singing. We always got on well. So that was in early, maybe March 73. And um, and then we spent, God, four or five months looking for a bass player. And then we finally, you know, got, got a guy, Boz Burrell. Yeah. And uh, called up Peter Grant. I mean, I'm kind of thumbnailing everything, but yeah, yeah. we said at the time we wanted a really good manager. Who's the biggest band in the world? Led Zeppelin. All right, let's get hold of Led Zeppelin's manager. Uh, and we did. Um, and Paul called him. And um, <laughs> and Peter Grant was great. He said, uh, Paul said, oh, well, I'm getting this band together. And Peter said, I know, I've heard it. I mean, what? <laughs> so I know all about it, you know, you know, the rock and roll industry is a little village. Yeah. And um, he knew that uh, uh, he knew all about us and he came to see us and and offered us uh, a, a recording contract with with Swan Song. Swan Song. First uh, first band yeah. signed to their label, right? You guys yeah. were first. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that you, you answered a question I was going to ask, which which was 
did you have some prehistory with Peter Grant or, or it sounds like he knew who you guys all were. And as you say, Paul called him and, and that set it in motion. So, well, he, no, I mean, I'd never heard of the guy quite honestly. And, and, and you won't believe this, but he was, his band before that was, was this band that recorded Winchester cathedral. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember the name of the band, but they went on tour. I mean, Peter Grant, Peter Grant was this legend. I mean, he really was a legendary road manager slash tour manager and ultimately a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as I said, you know, in the late 60s, the whole industry was really uh, shoehorned into this area in London, West London, uh, around um, um, Oxford Street. And Island Records um, had a... a uh, an office above uh, Peter Grant's office. We we never met him, but he was with a guy called Mickey Most, and they had rack management, and they they managed a, a bunch of different artists. But anyway, long story short, he hooked up with uh, Jimmy, and quite honestly, Zeppelin were originally Jimmy Page and Peter Grant's band. Mm-hmm. Um, they hired um, Robert and Bonzo from the Band of Joy, this wonderful band, blues band from the Midlands, and they became the new Yardbirds for a while because the Yardbirds were contracted to do a whole bunch of gigs. And Peter, being the clever guy, said, well, you know what? We'll call this band the new Yardbirds so we can honour these gigs and then we can become... And it was Keith Moon who came up with Led Zeppelin's name, you know. I heard that, yes, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, one of the great... The great names in rock came courtesy of one of the great owners in rock. Yeah. He says, did he say something like, Oh, I, he'd heard about the band and he said, it's going to go, it's going to go down like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah. It, it, something like that. It won't get off the ground. It's like a bloody yeah. Led Zeppelin. And, 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 and I don't know who was at the meeting, but it was like, what a great name. And of course it was L E A D. And yeah. someone yeah. said, well, we'll take the A out. And, uh, because it just wouldn't be the same now, would it? L-E-A-D Zeppelin? No, no. L-E-D, man. Yeah. <laughs> so the first record, so so the band formed in um, springish of 73? Well, no, the, the actual, the final lineup was when Boz came on board uh, uh, yeah. October 73. We recorded the album uh, that a couple of months later, and, and we sort of hit the, hit yeah. the world in 74. Yeah. And and I'm I'm guessing I mean my I, I I listen to that record all the time. That's that's one of the greatest debut records ever made. You know, I I put that alongside Led Zeppelin 1 and all these I mean and then there are many more after that, but in terms of a debut record it's just you know, it holds up. Thank almost you. Almost 50. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it it would I would guess that it sounds like you guys went in the studio and and you had all those songs written and and arranged and rehearsed and just were able to just I mean, not to say there wasn't any uh, uh, you know creativity in the studio by any means, but that you you had all this you had them all working. You're out absolutely there. right. Uh, that's yeah. a very good point because what happened was while we were waiting and while we were um, auditioning bass players. We had this sort of 10, 12 songs that, you know, Mick and Paul 
and you know we uh, and myself had, had written bad company and we just kept doing these songs and songs mm. over and over again with different bass players um and in fact when peter grant first saw us we didn't have boz we had another guy who was kind of hanging around he was pretty good but then he he disappeared so what happened was um around november 73 peter called uh, paul rogers and said look uh Hedley Grange, uh, Zeppelin have taken some time off. Paul John Paul Jones has got the flu. Hedley Grange is is nothing's happening. You want to take it for a week or 10 days? We said, hell yeah. Man. Um, and we just dived in. All Zeppelin's gear was there. Bonzo's kit was up in the uh um on the first level in the, the hall, which is how he got this incredible when the levee breaks, they recorded when the levee breaks there. So all of Zeppelin's gear was there. And, of course, not knowing, I should, wish I'd taken photos. But, you know, we just, you know, what the hell. So we steamed in and we recorded all the basic tracks, I think, in about a week and then or four days and then took another three or four days to mix the album. So we were just, we were like, uh, you know, dogs chasing a greyhound, chasing a rabbit out of the gate. Boom. Yeah. We had everything arranged and off we went. What a, what a, and what a great sounding record. I have to read a comment from a friend of mine. Um, who, you might know this guy, Mike Edison. He wrote a book about Charlie Watts called Sympathy for the Drummer, Why oh. Charlie Watts Matters. It's a great book. I, I'm going to ask him to send you a copy. Oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah, it's fantastic. But he has this great comment. He said, the 1970s didn't begin until the first Bad Company record dropped. Wow. And I think that's that's Goodness. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, so uh, dumb drummer geek question. The, uh, the count off to can't get enough of your love. Uh, Is, is that you or is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's me. Okay. Well, you, you have to, you have to remember that we were spread all over this vast manor house, uh, which is why we got this amazing um, separation because not one instrument was in the same room. Ah, okay. So I was down in the basement with the kit, uh, and Boz was next door in a boiler room with his little bass rig, and the other guys were upstairs. So I'd say, hey, everyone ready? One, two. So I counted it off uh, just to get everyone's attention. And I do believe it was the first track that we ever recorded on, on Bad Co. So there was an air of expectancy about the whole thing here we go one two and then go and then in and then when we got into the the mobile the studio and um we heard the count of i think paul rogers said hey that's let's keep it little knowing that it would be this sort of iconic it's you know, it's huge. I mean, it was Mike, just a, John, it was just a question of getting all the bastards together. <laughs> One, two, three, let's go. Ringo always had a great thing. Whenever, you know, there'd be a break and the musician was like a little ciggy or started chatting in the rehearsals, he'd get on the mic, he'd go, two, and we'd go, oh, shit. As if he was counting, you know, it's just a great way of yeah. getting everyone, everyone together. Oh, that's I, I when I do that, my band ignores me. So I, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not you or Ringo, but no, but you know, that became like uh, I was in a band that covered that song 
right after it came out. And that was like a, one of the more enjoyable parts of the thing was counting it, you know, just like counting <laughs> in the band and, and uh, mimicking your, you know, one, two, one, two. And it's just, it's, it is, it's so iconic. It's so iconic. Uh, and, uh, and you made a great point about the, um, the separation because the production of that record, again, I'll say it, it holds up, you know, almost 50 years later, it's such a great sounding record. Uh, I remember listening with headphones and just, that's the word, the separation between the instruments and then the drum kit too. There was such a great, um, you know, when you go around the toms, the sort of panning effect of that, that you, you know, you, you didn't hear a lot of that, of that, you know, to that level and that quality at that time. Well, you know, it's when I was talking to, to you know, I did a couple of three tours with Ringo and we, we would talk about how back in the day, you know, unfortunately, uh, recording techniques were, weren't that good. And, you know, you've got to remember the first two or three Beatles albums were recorded on four tracks. Yeah. And, and I mean, I use 10 tracks for my kit now. So it's just how they manage to, to get this. Uh, it, it was just a question of technology not getting in the way of creativity because, as we know, the Beatles, uh, those albums, particularly Rubber Soul and uh, Revolver, and Sergeant Pepper were just incredible. So it was nothing to do with recording techniques. And 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 Ringo's drums suffered because he's such a great drummer, but everything was sort of compressed into this yeah. little area. And then you could pan left and right and just hear Paul and Ringo together and pan the other way, you know, and, and hear John and George, the guitars. But then, listen, I went to see Love in uh, Vegas a few years ago, and George Martin had remixed all the uh, these iconic tracks. And, oh, my God, the drums were just – yeah. I, I, I mean, I got quite emotional because I know that Ringo would have gone, oh, at last, you can fucking hear me. <laughs> uh, you know, um, <laughs> Because he's such a great drummer. And back in the, the day, back in those days, the 60s, not much thought was given that much mm -hmm. to the drums. And uh, when I sat behind a, a, a mixing console, I made sure that, you know, my drums were heard. And I wanted to hear back what I had put in. Yeah. And, and, and I hope, I think I, I succeeded, you know. Absolutely. And, and so to that point, so like early records, do you remember where they recorded kind of the way Bonzos were with like a, a lot more room or were they more close mic'd? That's a good uh, question. Well, at the time, I didn't really know that much about the, um, the magic that room mics can attach to a, a, a drum mix. Mm -hmm. Until I went, to see, um, I went to see Jimmy and he was mixing Coda uh down in in this studio just west of london in the country and i walked in and you know give him a hug la 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 and and he was in the middle of mixing i forget which track but he was mixing john's uh, bonzo's drums and they were like they were great they were bonzo i mean one of the greatest drummers of all time but they didn't have that you know that massive yeah. so i said you know i just sat there didn't want to say anything you know and then if they're having a break, we're having a ciggy. And I said, hey, uh, Jimmy, what, 
the drums are not quite. He said, ah, <laughs> he, pushed up, he pushed up these uh, two Neumann 80s. I, I'm not quite sure of what they are, but the big room mics. He put them up to infinity. And there you had that magnificent bonzo sound. So from that day on, and now in my home recordings, in my home studio, I make sure there's a lovely uh, room mic because it adds, it adds to it. Like I said earlier, you're listening to, you're listening back to what you put in, and without that room mic, it's just a little kit. Yeah, you, yeah. And I would say to any drummer out there, always have a good couple of room mics and you'll sound like JB himself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you always had a great sound though, whether, whether they were room mics or, or, you know, close mics or um, always a great sound. And, and do you, do you remember Simon? Um, another sort of drum question the symbols that you were using, like on those early records, if they were the, were they the giant beats or the 2002s or the 602s? I never, well, yeah, good question. I, I'm trying to remember when I, when I switched to Pasty, I mean, prior to Pasty, I probably used Zildjian and, but it was another Bonzo thing again, because um, he said, oh, you know, come on, you, I've got a great deal with Pasty. They give you free symbols. Um, and quite honestly, John, if if you blindfolded me, I couldn't tell you a Sabian from a Zildjian from a I, I just can't. I'm not that discerning. I've never used very large symbols. I don't like them because when they get out of control, you've only got to hit them a little off center and they start flapping around and it really screws up. And I don't like them rigid. I don't like them screwed down, you know, so that the ride doesn't move. There's got to be a little bit of give. My point is that I never use uh, larger than 18, maybe a 20-inch ride, and always a 16 crash. Yeah. It just, you know, it just, you want to, you want to hit something that's not like an anvil, you know. Yeah, yeah. Bloody hell, what was that, you know. But you want to have a nice... And a little bit of sway in the, but not not where it kicks, you know, the the stick. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I've always, yeah, I've used paste. Um, and I went to the paste factory in Switzerland. You know, if you if you're a member of their fraternity, you got to go. And it's the noisiest <laughs> factory visit you will ever make. And, um, sure. Yeah. Because they show you the rivets and how they make it under the drills and la la la, but right at the end there's the biggest gong, oh. the famous pasty gong, and every drummer has hit it, and they said when Bonzo hit it, the whole building shook. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it too. <laughs> well, I, I asked that because um, you just made that point. You know, you, you can hear. I can hear on the records a real separation between what sounds like a 16 and an 18 inch crash. The 16 being that higher um, gets right out of the way fast, a really nice fast crash. And then a, a more sort of medium pitched, you know, sort of more full bodied 18. And I just wondered if, um, if what the series, you know, if they were like the, the oh, giant, you know, what the bars yeah. used the giant beats and all that stuff. But I, I don't know, quite honestly. I mean, I went through that rude phase, you know, they had the rude symbols. I just oh, like yeah. them. I mean, I like whether they're 2002s or rude or whatever they are. You know, I, I like paste symbols and that's that's just it. 
you know yeah. well they they I always you always had a great you know drum and cymbal sound on mm-hmm. record so and yeah. and pretty much into you know into the 70s you used the same setup pretty much same ludwig kit same yeah yeah it sounds, i sounds... i i had ludwig um I flirted with Remo. You know, Remo came out with drums, and as much as I love their heads, I didn't think their drums were really up to the the standard of the uh, the established uh, people, like you know, like Ludwig or Tamer or whatever Yamaha. Um, so I flirted with Remo for a, a year or two, and then I got a call from John Good, uh, DW. And I wasn't really sponsored by anyone, so I I didn't have any particular allegiance to Ludwig. They'd given me drums over the years for nothing, and they were they were great, you know. But every now and again, I just wanted to change. I've always had a Gretsch kit, and thanks mm-hmm. to dear Charlie, who who I grew up admiring enormously, he was the first drummer I knew that had a Gretsch kit, and I went out and got one. Um, but it really wasn't roadworthy uh, for for, and it was quite valuable. You know, Heyman were they were what I call cheap and cheerful. I mean, they were great. They were great drums, and I, I wish I had the kit now. But they they really weren't um, uh, they weren't class uh, like Gretsch. Gretsch had that lovely solidity to them, and the snare drums were beautiful. The, the whole thing about Gretsch were great. But it was too valuable to take on the road. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of money back then. And um, uh, so they always stayed in my studio. So then I got a call from John Good. And he said, hey, you know, we like you. We'd love to have you in the DW family. And that was clever, a clever bit of marketing. Because when you say, oh, OK. He said, well, we can't pay you anything, but we'll give you free drums. And that's all right. Because as you know, DW are quite expensive. Um, and I've been with them ever since, you know, over, God, nearly 30 years now. Beautiful drums too. And and great people. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to just see if there are any questions that I might've missed here, Simon. And, uh, I know we're getting close to the hour, so I won't, uh, Ah. keep you on with these. Okay. For another 10, 15 minutes. Good. Uh, let's see, let's see. Let's see. Oh, yard. I, I was gonna. There was a comment uh-huh, on yeah, right. yard on here who just, yeah. of course, said proper. Yeah, he's a, he's a big, big fan of yours, as you well know. Well, I'm a fan of his. Yeah, he, he was so nice. He's a top man. You know, before you and I met, I've known Yard a long time, and we we've had many conversations about you. And he would always, he would always. Um, acknowledge you as not only the great drummer that you are but just the great person he'd say you know if, if everybody was like simon kirk you know my my life would be so much easier you know that's just, lovely <laughs> yeah, just to, oh. yeah um anthony had another question anthony Cusina, who always has great questions uh what drummers inspired you the most when you were growing up and that's a great question to ask because i yeah wow cool it's quite a few, actually. I, I, the top of the heap for me, uh, the biggest influence on me was Al Jackson Jr. And it's funny, I just came back from Atlanta, uh, saw the Stones, and it, it oh, yeah, yeah. met up with Steve, Steve Jordan, and he's got one of Al Jackson's drums. I was so envious. Oh. And we share a love of, of Al Jackson. 
Um, there's something about Al Jackson, and I would urge any drummer out there, whether you're beginning or you're in your career or whatever, the middle of your career, or if you're just starting out, play anything with Al Jackson on it because he's a pocket drummer, a very high-pitched snare uh, like Charlie had. Um, but he had this wonderful, he, had, he played with a jazz grip, but he had this incredible backbeat. And, and uh, I think one of the best examples of his drumming was at the Midnight Hour yeah. with um, Wilson Pickett. You listen to that backbeat and it is just, and down in the valley, Otis Redding, listen to those two and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So Al would be, you know, my number one influence. Roger Hawkins with the Muscle Shoals guys, he just sadly passed away. Lovely drummer. Um, Lee Von Hell. Did you know? No, I never met him. I never yeah. met him. Actually, you know what? I did. And I'm, it's been so long. I actually, uh, when I was with Free, we did a package tour of island artists. And it was Free, Traffic, and John Martin. And Steve, Steve Winwood and Jim Capaldi brought in the Muscle Shoals rhythm section to play oh, Traffic. Yeah. yeah. So I did. I got to meet... Roger, but we only sort of met in airports and backstage. Uh, but he showed me the benefit of playing with that jazz grip. I mean, he hardly, you know, I'm one of these flailers. You know, <laughs> he was this gentle, yeah. but he had this whip, like Charlie, that lovely jazz grip, but he whipped it back. So Roger Hawkins, Levon, Levon was a lovely drummer, another one who played with the jazz grip. That's right, yeah. Um, Charlie. For sure, a big influence on me. And then no influence, but I ad admired the hell out of him. Buddy Rich. I mean, Buddy solos. God. Yeah. I mean, he swung. Just, yeah. Exactly. You, you, even if even if he wasn't your favorite drummer, you have to just marvel at his oh, technique. It's just stunning. And Ringo, dear Ringo. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyone with a pocket and feel, I'm probably missing people out, but I, those would be the the big five for me yeah, uh, who had influence. Obviously I, I love John, he, he, but he wasn't an influence on me as such, but I, I was a huge fan of his uh, Stuart Copeland, you know, another great drummer, Nico, Nico McBrain, Richie Haywood with little feet. Oh my God. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he's one of the great underrated drummers of all time because I've I've gone back to Little Feet now. I'm listening to some of early Richie Hayward, and he it sounds like two guys playing. He's so good, amazing. And and I'm guessing too, Jeff Beccaro. Ah, was a, was a big yeah. influence. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's in that same group of guys you're talking oh, about. Wonderful drummer. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, uh, I never met Jeff. My God, I I would love to give him a hug because he's his playing was just sublime. Wonderful. But, yeah. You know, as, as we said, as I said at the beginning, and um, you've had that same influence on, on a lot of players, Mike, you know, not just me, but our yeah. friend Stan Lynch, when we had that uh, other, you know, call a few weeks ago, you know, Stan was beside himself to be, uh, you know, and he, he called me afterward when we, when we, off, you know, after we got offline, he called me and he thanked me for, he said, I, I didn't belong in that group with all those people. And I said, Stan, come on, man. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I know. He, he's so well, funny. You know, John, we're just, 
as musicians, we're just conduits, you know, we're passing it on. So whoever was influenced by me will be passing it on to their kids and future generations. You know, we're just, we're just passing it on. And, and I, I'm just, I'm honored that people feel influenced by me because it's, uh, I, I can't really expound on that. I, I, it's an honor to to be able to pass something on. And people say, you know, I grew up listening to your drumming and I love it. And it, it just makes me very emotional that uh, people say those things. So thank you. Uh, well, yeah. you're sincerely welcome. And, and uh, uh, I'm going to just ask you one more question as we close in. Mike, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing Mike's last name correctly, Pieski. What type of snare drums are your favorites for recording or live, wood, brass, et cetera? <laughs> um, well, that's an easy one because I've got the same drum. Uh, let me go and get it. Okay, yeah. Well, that's a good question, Mike. It's, it's going to prompt a great answer. This uh, is a 1972 brass, Black Beauty brass oh show. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Ludwig. And it's been, and I'm sorry, John Good. Uh, <laughs> there's just something about this. Uh, and it's been on every Bad Company song that was ever played. That's the drum. That is the drum. Okay. I, I really... You know, it's just something about certain drums. You know, it's 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 like any instrument; it's personal. So, yeah, seventy-two Black Beauty. Uh, I have it. I have a case for it just for that. It comes with me if ever I go on the road with bad company. Unfortunately, just to keep costs down, I don't take my kits. Uh, I yeah. rent DW kits wherever I go, and they're so damn good that I know it's going to be fine. Sure. But that comes with me. And I give it to my roadie. I said, if you ever lose this, you better leave town. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Okay. I was well, you you answered my I was gonna ask if you if that stays home, but you take that. That's that's I your do. drum. I do, and I'm nervous as hell when I put it on the carousel or the you know, the give it to the baggage guy at the airport. And yeah, you know, I said, look after this, brother, because my whole sex life is in there. <laughs> better take care of this <laughs> that's fantastic you know I, I assumed it was a ludwig you know the the, the classic superphonic six and a half by 14 but yeah. a black beauty makes sense because it's it's got so much character to it it's i just wanted to add uh to that list of drummers not because he's one of my best friends but chad smith oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know you you say oh my god i wish i'd mentioned oh shit but yeah. Chad, and I played with Chad uh, at Berkeley College of Music. We did a clinic together. And it's like, um, I, I've always said, it's like pissing into Niagara Falls, uh, playing with Chad, because he's like, he's like an octopus. He's like got eight <laughs> arms. And he's got feel, he's got taste, he's solid, and he's a beautiful guy. I love him. Yeah, me too. And, uh, but my God, it's like riding a stallion without a saddle. <laughs> playing alongside chad he's he's great i love him he you know i 
I would add him to that list of, I mean, I think, I think people know how great he is, but I think he probably isn't acknowledged enough for being right. Because he's, he's got such a big personality. I think people know him as this, you know, his his big person, but he's, he is such a great, great drummer. I mean, a really, really great drummer. No question. He's, he's just, you know, there's so many guys that that you think, Oh my God. And Greg, Greg Bissonnette, he did a drum solo on Ringo's tour. Oh my God. It's like suddenly all that jazz stuff came out, you know, and we did this thing, um, drum together, a hundred drummers doing that. People song come together. Greg sends me the, (coughs) the, I don't read drum music, but Greg sends me these charts left, right, right, left, left. I'm going, (laughs) shit, Greg, I can't, there's more movements in this than the Swiss watch. I can't do this. (laughs) I know. And he's, And uh, uh, I, I can I can read a little bit, and he'll send me stuff, and he'll go, "Come on, you can read that." Come, I'm like, Greg, I you need to go slow with me. You know, I took a I we I went to his house a couple of years ago when I was out in LA, and we you know in his little studio, he's got two kits facing each other, and we played. Uh huh. And it was it was the most fun song, and we played to a bunch of Beatles songs, and uh, and then it. he wrote this part out, yeah, and he said something. Recognize this, he said. What what Beatles song is this? <laughs> and it's it's the it's the Phil Ringo plays. Oh gosh, I'm 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 gonna ruin the whole story by not but but he had written out this Phil that Ringo and I said I I can't and then once he played it, I said, Okay, I can see something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, funny. I gotta mention also Vinny that for me the big the the, the jazz rock drummers and Vinny Kalauta. Yeah, for oh. sure. Yeah, Vinny. monster drummer. Yeah, a monster. And Dave Weckl. I mean, go go on to any YouTube of Dave Weckl, and and it's it's that form of drumming is completely impressive. To it impresses the hell out of me. I can't make seven four swing. I can't even play seven four. I'm probably good to five four. That's about it for me. But Vinny. It's just and and people, other drummers, other musicians, Sting, who I know pretty well, he mentions Vinny and they go, oh, my God, Vinny's just ah, um, go to Jeff Beck live at Ronnie Scott's. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and watch Vinny Colota. And it's just my God. So I got to give a, a hats off to Vinny. And of course, Steve Gadd. I mean, Steve, yeah. is just, Steve, another. another. The more I listen, uh, I mean, the more I stay on. <laughs> on the air, the more drummers I'm going to come up with. So <laughs> I think we better draw a curtain over this pretty quickly. No, I think you, I think, I, I think <laughs> you, you should feel proud that you've, you've, no one's going to be disappointed that you've left anyone off the list. Cause you've oh. named all the, all the really great guys and um, you know, oh, thank you. Really fabulous. And, and yourself included, because, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to playing, when it comes to playing four, four, I don't know that many of those guys can touch you. And I mean that. You know, there, there's, Thanks. that's, and I, and I think everyone watching would agree with that. So, well, thank you very much. Sean. Yeah. But Simon, thank you so much. It's, it's been such an honor. It, I, it's thank you for responding to my email back, you know, a month or so ago when we set up the Charlie uh, chat, that was so kind of you then and agreeing to do this. It's uh, you're, you're exactly what I had heard about you from everybody. All our, our mutual friends have said, so thank you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, and anytime you know you want to chat again, um, I, I'll be here. Just let me know. Sounds fantastic. I look forward to it. I will. I will take you up on that. Yar says, uh, 
fantastic interview, fabulous interview, and thanks for the mention. So um, if you'll stay with me for just one second, Simon, sure. I'll end the stream and then we'll, we'll say goodbye in the, uh, okay. in, the, in the room. All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Big hand for Simon Kirk. Wow. What a treat. Thank you so much, Simon.